taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics. Well, taking the truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, everyone. We've been praying for you, uh, you, our listeners, uh, praying that everyone finds peace and comfort in God's glorious grace during this time in our world. Um, We've also been praying that uh, that you see this time as an opportunity uh, to press into God's Word and to engage the loved ones around you. Well, let's welcome the man that does not sleep, Brian Chilton. <laughs> welcome, Brian. You're not too far from the truth here lately. There's been a lot <laughs> going on. A lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to also ask uh, our listeners if they... Uh, if. Uh, if uh, they could offer up some prayers for uh, for you and your schooling as you're getting close to the uh, kind of these these trying portions of, of the of your schooling. Yes, yes, please do. We uh, this we've got I've got four classes to, left in the program and two this summer, which has been tough because we're in the process of, of moving. In addition to uh, this, and then we have two more. One one of the classes coming up in the fall is the what's been called the most difficult class in the entire program which is bibliology with dr john morrison who's just a genius of a guy just a wonderful guy so yes i, I would certainly appreciate your prayers this year as uh, you know i knew this year was going to be difficult going into it with all these things going on but i had no clue that we would have a national world global pandemic and national riots and things of this nature uh it's the things so as i've always heard like in boxing it's the hits you don't expect that hit that uh, hurt you the worst right yeah i can totally understand that so hey we have a special guest tonight uh you want to go ahead and introduce him yes sir mr ryan Pauley is joining us from beautiful southern california i had a chance to be on his uh coffee house questions uh youtube show uh, not long ago and man i was envious it was cold and rainy here and it was bright sunshine and warm he was wiping the sweat off his brow so man had me envious of the weather there in his uh, in his location and so he is a high school teacher he has interviewed several individuals and recently Recently interviewed Dr. William Lane Craig. So it is wonderful to have the man who knows the man. So we want to welcome Ryan Pauly to the Billator Christie podcast. Oh my goodness, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, you uh, you keep saying I, the man that knows the man, but I don't really know him. I just sent an email and happened to interview him. I got lucky. No, but I appreciate it. It was, a, it was a pleasure having you on my show. We had a great conversation. I really enjoyed that. I mean, you're the one who's written the book. You're the one in the PhD program. I'm just a high school teacher. <laughs> well, hey, man, you, you still, you you are wonderful at what you do, and I, I just appreciate and I'm honored to be on your show and certainly honored to have you with us on this podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Ryan, uh, tell us about how you first came to know Christ. Yeah, well, you know, I think maybe like, you know, quite a few Christians, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I was just incredibly blessed by that. My, my parents are Christian, my grandparents are Christian on both sides, and so that was just always uh, just a core central part of our family growing up. 
and, and reading scripture and going to church. And, and so it was about the age of eight, you know, and a story that I don't really have much memory of, but my mom told me is I was at some camp and, you know, God really uh, impacted my life and I was crying and, and everything. And I went up and accepted him. And, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the journey of, I think, you know, many, uh, many Christians growing up in Christian families. It's not kind of the big, the big thing, but uh, just kind of, uh, that's just what I'd always known. That's yeah, what I've awesome. always been uh, aware of. Uh, you know, but I think for me, the kind of the cool part of my journey, though, is that because it was it was just so much a part of the culture of my family, uh, you kind of take it for granted. I, I went to Christian school. Um, I went to church. I, you know, did youth group for the most part and, and everything and, and uh, ended up going to college to get my degree in theology and step foot in my theology classes and realized I knew nothing. Um, uh. that, that I really had such a minimal view of Scripture, um, kind of just one of the Christians that knows the Bible stories and says they're a Christian, and, you know, I did my devotionals, but really just had not thought deeply, I think, about who God is and how He relates to us. And and so that was a huge thing for me of just realizing, like, wow, uh, here I am, you know, eight, uh, I guess at that point about 20 years old, been a Christian for 10-plus <laughs> years, and and really realizing kind of the, the lack, I guess, of the, in the depth of what it was. And so for me, that's kind of the cool part of my story is, is not only, uh, you know, the, 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 the blessing of growing up in a Christian family and having parents ingrain that in me from a young age, but then the recognition of different life stages of where uh, it really kind of hit me of, of needing to take Christianity seriously. Yeah. Yeah, so did that help you uh, be able to, as your school teacher, did that was that able, was that uh, uh, helpful in in being able to uh, relate to kids, or was that actually kind of a stumbling block for you? Um, I think it definitely helped relate to kids, and uh, I mean, since especially, uh, so I'm a high school Bible teacher. I teach a comparative religions and worldviews. I teach a historical Christian doctrine and apologetics, and I teach a philosophy of ethics. And so, you know, I think a, a lot of what uh, I'm doing is is realizing um, I, I want to teach my high school kids the things that I didn't learn or maybe don't remember learning uh, wow. and trying to grab their attention. Cause I'm sure in my Bible classes, they probably went over something similar, but I don't know where I was. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I don't remember learning it. So, you know, trying to really uh, find ways so that it connects to them. It's not just them listening to more Bible stuff, uh, but really growing uh, deep and being challenged to think deeply about what they believe. You, you right. know, I'm, I'm really impressed. And you say you teach at a high school. Is it a Christian high school? Yeah, it's a Christian international high school, and so um, uh, we have uh, our main head location here is here in Southern California. Uh, we have 20-plus locations over in China as well, I think one in South Korea, and we're trying to open up a few others. Uh, so actually about 70 to 80 percent of our students are from man mainland China uh, and are coming over as international students. I just, wow. I just found it fascinating that, you know, the emphasis you guys are placing on philosophy, you know, I'm disheartened that many universities are are doing away with their philosophy departments, doing away with the emphasis in philosophy. And you know, philosophy, I think that is honestly part of the problem we're facing in our modern times is we don't know how to think well, and philosophy helps us to to think better. So, what what are some of the benefits that you've seen? I know this isn't the topic of the podcast, but uh, what, what are some of the benefits that you've seen through teaching philosophy and having students going through this program? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's what you just said, is that philosophy is based on thinking deeply, and that's my challenge to them. Um, you know, uh, our education system here in the United States is very different than what my students are used to, which is a lot of just memorization 
uh, to pass a test. Uh, that's uh, you know what I'm told and what they tell me of how a lot of education is done, uh, like in China. And oh, really? so it's already a stretch, I think, for a lot of my students uh, that they are, are having to interact and participate and talk in class. But then I think there's another level of challenging their thoughts, challenging their worldview uh, and their ideas that they have just kind of grasped um, and, and don't even realize that they have. And so the benefit and, and the cool thing that I've seen is just, especially because I teach mostly non-Christian students, and, you know, that surprises most people, and I even have atheists that don't believe it, and they challenge me online. I don't believe you. There's no way you teach mostly non-Christian students at a Christian school. And then my I was students just going to say that. And my students, my students all laugh because they, they know about my online and everything, and they laugh, and they go, do they want to come over here and see for themselves? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, but seeing my students come in and say there's no evidence for God's existence or evolution is a fact, what we'll be talking about tonight, and then, then really taking time and, and thinking about the worldview issues, looking and examining the evidence and challenging them to think deeply, to, to confront logical fallacies, and really presenting clear-thinking Christianity. And they walk away changed. Uh, and it's not just the, the non-Christian students who at the end they'll go, wow, I didn't know there's actually good reason to believe this, and I'm thinking differently about it. To Christian students who go, wow, my questions have been answered, and my relationship with Jesus is, is stronger now because of this. I just got a text message this last week uh, from a student who'd grown up in a you know Christian Catholic family and, and now is just so thankful for being in my doctrine class and actually going over the arguments and evidence for, for Christianity and actually now saying, I believe this wholeheartedly, that it's true, it makes sense, my relationship with Jesus is stronger because of it. And to me, there's there's nothing better than that. And, and it's yeah. all about really challenging and helping them learn how to think, uh, yeah. because there's just so much faulty thinking, and why we need to think well is just another huge aspect to it. Right. Absolutely. We know... Yeah, that's... Ryan, uh, being a high school teacher, and we want to say from from up front, as as you mentioned prior to the podcast, that that you're not a scientist, but you've you've had a lot of training in science. Being a high school teacher, teaching some of the things you do, you know, you have to confront certain scientific issues. So today we're talking about some issues concerning science, and so uh, especially involving creation. So concerning the views of creation. What are some of the various viewpoints that exist in our time? How do people uh, work through um, how the universe came into being, how life comes, came to existence? Uh, what are some of the various viewpoints we find? Yeah, well, just you know, to back up a little bit uh, before that, you know, you mentioned you know I'm not a scientist, and that's true. I wish I had took more science classes in college, uh, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I have a certificate in science apologetics because that's what I found, and the reason why is. I found that the majority of, of, of difficulties that students have are related to science. Hmm. And, I, and, I, and I, I honestly believe that, it, and I think Sean McDowell said this in an interview somewhere, I have it, you know, his quote somewhere, but, you know, it's, it's that if uh, many students walk away from their faith, and when asked why, the, the, the number one response is, uh, I don't think it's evidentially true because of either one evolution or scientific evidence or something like that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Sean says, if this then means that if we are going to take the discipleship of our young people seriously, we have to know the reasons uh, and the scientific evidence for the existence of God and, and, and creation and those sort of things. And so that's the main reason why not only do I enjoy it, but I've, I've taken a stronger interest in science because I do find it being the biggest issue that 
distract students, that, that leads them away from Christianity uh, and challenges them. Um, my first speaking event was because a, a youth pastor came and said, hey, we had students that graduated, went off to college, started studying science, they came back after one semester in college, told all the students in the youth group, you can't be a Christian and a scientist at the same time, so you have to choose, we're choosing science. Wow. And they went, this shocked our youth group, we don't know what to do. Uh, can you come uh, come in and address the topic of science and faith? And so I spent two weeks with them on science and faith and evolution. And, and you know, and so that's why I, I think this is so necessary for those who are listening, for parents to have a strong grasp to be able to discuss the science topics, because that is one of the biggest issues that leads students away from uh, the faith. Right. Um, but yeah, you mentioned different views. I mean, so there's, there's quite a different range of, of creation views, um, you know, the most popular being a young age creationism or a calendar day or day age creationism, uh, that God created everything uh, in six literal 24-hour days over the course of 6,000, you know, uh, six days of creation, everything being six to 10,000 years old. Uh, there's gap theory that's been thrown out where there's a gap in time before, you know, uh, God creating the heavens and the earth and then day one of creation. And so that's how you can get an old universe, but maybe a young earth. Um, Day-age creationism or progressive creationism, in short, is that God created over six progressive stages, that the word day in Genesis 1 does not just mean 24 hours, but can mean in a, a longer period of time. And so uh, the six days of creation would be six long periods of time, The but, but God is creating each um, animal and each species uh, uniquely in its current form. And so there's no evolution taking place in that. Uh, then you have other Christian views like a theistic evolution or sometimes called evolutionary creationism. And there's some different ways in which they kind of get these to work. Some are more deistic, some are more theistic on how God is involved in that, but where you kind of have taken the truths of Christianity and combined that too uh, to the evolutionary theory in some way. Uh, and then obviously you have your non-Christian view and the most popular being um, an evolutionary view that uh, of common ancestry and that all life arose from kind of a single cell at the beginning. So this would be kind of some of the bigger, I guess, Christian views, you know, old earth versus young earth or progressive versus young earth. And then uh, theistic evolution, kind of a blend and then kind of a secular view, the evolutionary view. Have you, uh, Ryan, have you kind of, um, I guess over the past little while, have you kind of been picking up on the fact that, um, or not the fact, but that, that a lot of people that are um, walking along um, Darwin's thinking, um, you know, or, or, or saying, you know, walking in that side of, of that where, where they're talking about Darwin's evolutionary uh, process, is that, are they actually saying that, that that can't really function anymore as, as a thought? And, and But then we got Christians actually picking that gauntlet up and actually running with it? Um, have you been seeing that? Uh, absolutely. Um, there is, uh, so I, I can't remember the exact year, but there was a, um, I think it was like just in 2017, just three or four years ago, uh, the, uh, a meeting of the Royal Scientific Society uh, over in England uh, had a meeting discussing the problems with the Darwinian view uh, and trying to propose a different, you know, theory that explained the origin of life and the and the the um, the existence of the dance life that we have today better. Uh, there's also uh, you can look up. I think it's called Dissenting from Darwin, mm. and uh, and it's a list of like over a thousand scientists at major universities um, that say that they're not convinced that 
the general kind of neo-Darwinian view of random genetic mutation acted upon by natural selection can account for the diversity and the information and complexity that we see today. And so I think this is also one thing I show my students uh, that is interesting is that, you know, it's often, you know, believed that it's only kind of ignorant Christians that hold to some sort of creation view, and it's the smart scientists that all believe in evolution. And when I show my students who have a high respect for the schools here in California, that, that scientists, uh, professors of physics and biology at UCLA and UC Berkeley and UC Davis and UC Irvine um, are saying, we are not convinced that evolution, uh, random genetic mutations and natural selection can account for what we see today. Um, they're, they're surprised by that, and I think that's news for a lot of people. At the same time, as you mentioned, it almost seems like there are Christians kind of as scientists are giving up or at least recognizing the, the, the problems with evolution and are abandoning kind of the Darwinian picture and creating other evolutionary models. At the same time, Christians have kind of almost, maybe this is not the best way to say it, but almost kind of gotten tired of fighting that fight and just went, okay, fine, I'll concede. They're jumping on the evolutionary boat and creating an evolutionary, you know, creationism or theistic evolution right. as the boat is sinking. And that's kind of that's kind of strange because I do think sometimes we give up a lot of of room to to uh, secularist ideas, and and I'm surprised at the number of people who are jumping on the theistic evolutionary bandwagon. And whereas, as you say, that there are a lot of secularists who are jumping, at least trying to reform the model, or even jumping off off the. Uh, evolutionary bandwagon i mean do you think there's just a lot of pressure as you say you think it's just that people are giving up ground or that they just don't care or they're just trying to find a middle ground of some sort yeah i mean that's hard i think that everyone's you know purpose for why they do what they do is going to be different i think some think that there are legitimate reasons for it still think an evolutionary picture is is a good one um at the evangelical theological society meeting in in san diego this past november i attended a panel discussion on theistic evolution and there were about three christians in favor of theistic evolution that gave their perspective uh and then you had uh, people like stephen meyer stephen c meyer and paul nelson from the discovery institute uh that, that gave their response on why theistic wow. evolution is is kind of bankrupt you know stephen c meyer uh wrote the yeah. book or co- co-authored and edited the book uh, theistic evolution with numerous theologians and philosophers jp moreland had a big play in that uh kind of um debunking and showing the errors and problems with a theistic evolution view. Now, these guys at the panel discussion, they they were presenting what seemed to be, to them, good arguments and evidence. Um, mm-hmm. But I found one of the questions at the end was very interesting. Um, you know, uh, Frank Turek asked the question, um, what is it that you see that cannot just as easily or even better be explained by a, a creator that you have to Except the evolutionary view. That's a great well, question. And 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 they they you know they talk about you know and I think they brought up the um, I think something with DNA or, or they I, I forget exactly their response but it's kind of one of these common answers is that and one of the things that I, I bring up with my students and we'll probably talk about is that I have yet to find evidence that I think supports only a Darwinian view of of evolution, a common ancestry, they can't just as easily or even better be explained by a common creator. Mm. Right. And and so if you are going to accept a theistic view that the creator exists, I don't understand why you would then need to also accept evolution. 
I think, and Sean McDowell says this, evolution, you know, accepting it is kind of like saying what's two plus two, but you can't say four. Mm. Three and five start looking really good. And that's kind of like, how do you explain the origin of life and the existence of complex, diverse life today, but you can't say God? Well, evolution is the next best answer. Uh, now, scientists are creating other theories trying to find be- ways that explain it better, but right now evolution is kind of the best answer if you take God out of the picture. Wow. And so it is it is kind of confusing to me as to why someone who does accept a theistic view of the world would then also hold an evolutionary view as well. That brings yeah. us to our next question, Curtis. I'll go ahead and let you ask this. Cause <laughs> well, well, I was just I was going to make a statement before I asked the question, I'm sorry. but 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 Ryan, um, wasn't there one of the scientists there that that was at that um, conference, or it, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken of of who it was, but didn't they say that it's not just a a missing link, uh, one missing link uh, for for the evolutionary uh, theory to be to be uh, uh, actually promoted or to keep going it's a missing link between each and every species um i don't remember that being said um, okay specifically at the conference but i know people i think it was jonathan wells that said i could be wrong on this but i think it was jonathan wells that said something like you know it's not just like you know it, it's it's you know if you want to imagine the missing links it's almost like saying that you can you can travel from los angeles to japan because we found the hawaiian islands mm. and on foot and it's like, no, just even if we were to find a couple things that seem to make a connection, there's still so many gaps. Um, right. It just it just doesn't make it uh, make that possible. Right. Well, what is uh, what is microevolution and macroevolution, and how do they differ? Um, just this I think is a very important question. I, I wasn't trying to right. rush you a while ago, Curtis, because I think this is an area where people get confused. Right. Especially when people yeah. talk about evidence for evolution. So, uh, that, again, not trying to rush you. Because I, I think this is a, a, a situation that we need to to distinguish. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And and in, when I discuss this, and I want to just emphasize this for those who are listening, this is one of the most important points, and this is where I always start. If someone is going to say, evolution is a fact, evolution is true, my first question is going to be, what do you mean by evolution? Right. And and I want them to and I want to make sure that they're defining evolution in a way that we can agree, because if they're talking about microevolution being a fact, uh, I'm on board. Count me in. Yeah. I do think that. Yeah. And and so, you know, sometimes evolution can be, you know, just change over time. Well, yeah, I've evolved. I've changed over time. You know, evolution of dance, evolution of cars, that kind of thing. And so I want to make sure that they define it. And the reason why is, OK, so microevolution is going to be small genetic changes within a kind. I think that's a very simple definition, but it does the job. Small genetic changes within a kind. And so you, you know, you have, uh, you know, one dog and you breed it with another kind of dog and you get a new kind of dog, but it's still a dog, right? right? So right. small genetic change, but it stays within the kind. Macroevolution is going to be small genetic changes that add up over time to create a new species or a new kind, something completely different. And so uh, this is where it's important because Oftentimes you'll hear someone say, well, microevolution is the same as macroevolution, just simply over more time. You take the big timeline of macroevolution, you take a small section, that's micro. And you often hear this claim. It's simply not true, though, because micro is within a kind. Macro is getting a new kind of animal, new species. And so there is the big difference. And so that is what we're arguing with is, and I think the evidence, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but I think the evidence shows 
that you give microevolution more time and you still get more microevolution. Uh, it doesn't turn from micro into macro. But I want to make sure when having a conversation with someone that they are going to say evolution is a fact. What do you mean by evolution? That they're going to talk about either you know Darwinian or neo-Darwinian evolution. They're going to talk about common ancestry uh, and make sure that that is the definition they're going to that they're defending because that has so much weight. Then when it, now we start talking about what is the evidence that supports it. I've heard I've sure. heard people say before, and I think this is such a, an important distinction because I've heard people talk about uh, the human immune system being like microevolution and using that as an example for evolution. And yes, I think all of us would agree that we have an immune system that we adapt to viruses, and, and our bodies grow antibodies that, uh, that that fight off these diseases. I don't think there's any argument on that. But that doesn't change the type of species we are. It doesn't mean that our children will be changed from uh, Homo sapien to a different type of of being. And so, I, I, again, I think that demarcation between the two systems is really important. Yeah. So what, how deep, how deep can it go, uh, Ryan? I mean, um, how deep can, I shouldn't say how deep can it go, how deep can microevolution go before people start saying, well, see, that's you're just confusing that into macro. So I'm not quite sure I understand the question of how deep it can go before it gets into macro. Mm-hmm. I, well, go ahead. Well, is it kind of like, some way make, you know, make the argument of like, you, you have, if this is what you're talking about, of like, you have kind of the, the canine kind of, uh, uh, you know, he, and this is even hard within biology, you know, of kingdoms, phyla, class, and species, and genus, and all that kind of stuff. And, and But you have kind of the canine species. And so you, I think you can make the argument that, uh, that wolves and dogs and whatnot is, can, be, can be microevolutionary changes. Uh, the feline, you got lions and tigers and cats and whatnot. And they, those can all be within the kind of the feline species. Uh, and that would be fine with microevolution uh, and you, you have a horse and you you know you have a donkey and then you you know mute it made them and you get a mule or whatever and uh, that can be examples of microevolution uh, it's where now you're changing it as something that is completely structurally and different than what you had prior to and and again I, I've had students and this might be you know what you're asking but I've had I've had students will say like well what about like if you have one creature that's really close to another creature and is that and I go look I I, I don't know about all these kind of gray areas that are right on the edge, but for Darwinian kind of macroevolution to be true, I mean, you have humans have a common ancestor, you know, um, with something radically different, humans and horses, and, and all living things have a common ancestor at the beginning. Uh-huh. And so we're not, I don't need to argue over the really close kind of borderline, was it possible this is microevolution, that you get a lizard into something else? Well, no, we're talking about, you know, lizards into, into birds, you know, it's, or whales into land animals. And so we're talking about big changes uh, that, uh, that I don't think there's the evidence for. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I was um, I was in a conversation the other day with a with a fella um, and he was talking about how he uh, did the ancestry dot com and he found out that he has, you know, um, Eastern European in him and so on and so forth when he thought he actually had. Uh, Spanish in a minute and so you know and, and it goes up into all of that and I, I, I kind of chuckled and I said isn't that cool how they can take your DNA and they can track it back because of these certain markers that are in it but you don't find that you had feathers at one time <laughs> 
and he just busted up laughing. He thought that was pretty funny. So, <laughs> well, and this brings us to another problem as we as we've defined you know macroevolution, talking about the changes between different species. Uh, or supposedly, what, what, you know. So when we talk about macroevolution, that's what we're talking about—the problems with evolution in general. What are the inherent problems with macroevolution? Well, um, I, I, there's quite a few problems. I mean, um, so I think two big ones is uh, atheist Thomas Nagel wrote a book, uh, Mind and Cosmos, uh, and, and according to him, there are two things that no uh, atheist can explain, and he says, I, I think he says, uh, we'll ever be able to explain, and it, one is the origin of life, that uh, to get living, uh, to get life from non-living matter by a purely natural process is just impossible, uh, and then the second one would be diverse, complex uh, beings from a single cell, and he says that an atheist has no explanation for that as well. Um, and, you know, I think Thomas Nagel in that book as well, he, he's the one that has the famous quote of, you know, I just don't want the, the universe to be like that. I don't want there to be a God. And it's like, you know, the God hypothesis then comes up and goes, well, God can explain both of these things very easily. And it's like, well, but I don't want the universe to be like that. Um, and so I think those are two big challenges uh, to a macro evolutionary view. I think the, another one that I think is very powerful um, is the Cambrian Explosion. Uh, which Stephen C. Meyer has written a book on this as well, right. um, called Darwin's Doubt. But I think this, I think the Cambrian explosion, to me, creates a, does a final, uh, just does a, a death blow to the evolutionary view. Um, and, and so I think those are three big problems. Well, let's let's drill down on that Cambrian evolution a little bit, just to just to kind of you know help our listeners um, really understand that because um, when we were in school. Um, we understood it as um, these were just um, different um, epochs of time. Am I right? Yeah, and the different kind of creation periods, right? So, yeah. again, so, you know, I don't know kind of where, where your listeners fall on this. And so what I normally say uh, when I speak to a wide range of audience is uh, that, you know, the Cambrian explosion and by going over it is I'm going to accept a, an old Earth view. I'm going to accept the the this, the the common scientific dating of our universe uh, being 13.7 billion years old and the Earth being 4.5 billion years old. And, and you can do that just for the sake of argument. Uh, what, uh, is to back up a little bit, I think one thing that Christians often do, and I've seen this, is that we first have to argue that the Earth is young and then try to show evolution's false. And I, and I think that's a hard pill to swallow for an evolutionist, is to first accept the Earth is young and then discuss evolution. And so... Um, what I will do is I will I will use all of the data that they accept and and the, the, the dating for when everything happened just for the sake of argument and I can still show this creates massive problems for uh, evolution so just for those who are listening if they are uh, you know more uh, lean towards a young earth view uh, don't get upset when you know when I say you know for example the Cambrian explosion happened for uh, 540 million years ago can, can uh, I interject you know, one, 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 one real one quick point here. I think that's a very wise thing to do, even if you're a young Earth creationist, because it's very yep. comparable to what Gary Habermas does with the minimal facts argument. So he takes the minimal facts argument for the resurrection and then argues back from that. You can argue back from that for the authenticity of Scripture, but you're accepting what people, what people from all ilks will accept. I think that's a very smart way of doing this. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so the Cambrian explosion happens 540 million years ago to about 520 million years ago. Um, it's a time where about 50 to 80 percent of the animal phyla appear, and they and it really most of them appear over about a two to three million year window. And so again, that's kind of what what science is telling us today. Um, and again, if, if someone's a young earther, young earthers are going to have a different response to this, and, and they're going to say, no, it wasn't 540 million years ago. It was much more recent. But again, for the kind of the sake of argument, uh, this is when the Cambrian experience, uh, Cambrian explosion uh, took place. And uh, and you find some very interesting things um, that just come along with this. So this is really what looks like is kind of, it is that, again, 50 to 80% of animal phyla appear during this time. Uh, and they appear very quickly uh, and without any kind of physical fossils and evidence left behind in that fossil record. Now, one thing that was really cool is as I'm teaching my high school students this, most of which are from China, as I mentioned, uh, back in 2019, uh, so just last year, there was a huge fossil discovery made in the Hubei province of China. And then one of my students was like, I'm from the Hubei province. <laughs> and so uh, what's fascinating is they found, I think, around 20,000 fossils uh, in the Hubei province, dated them to kind of the late end of the Cambrian period, about 520 or so million years ago. Um, and what they also, what was fascinating about this discovery is they found soft body creatures like jellyfish. Uh, fossilized in virtually the same form as the jellyfish that we see today. And the scientist uh, even says here in this article, um, he goes, you know, I, it blew my mind as a paleontologist. I never thought I, I would get to witness the discovery of such an event. Uh, and then goes on to say, most of the major animal lineages were established in a singular event in the history of life, the Cambrian mm. explosion. Mm. Now, they obviously would not say this singular event was a creation event. But to me, I go, look, and this, so this is why people will say, like, look, the idea of Darwin's tree of life, the tree has been shattered. The, the tree has been destroyed. Uh, yet we're still teaching it in classes because, again, that, that's what best explains it. But what most will refer to now is that what better fits the evidence is what they would call like an evolutionary lawn, uh, where you have different blades of grass uh, they grow up, and there can be some diversification in that blade of grass as it begins to split off, but that's it. Uh, it doesn't come down into the singular kind of tree, as Darwin uh, explained. Hmm. Wow. That's, 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 uh, that, that helps uh, be able to have some, have some foothold in, in being able to describe and show um, that we're not, uh, it's not so rigid that we're, Old Earth, New Earth, were actually willing to lay down some of that and ac accept some of the some of the ground that they have, and be able to show from there um, yeah. using that. So, yeah. Think, yeah, and I think again, like a really quick point is a little bit uh, just how this applies in other areas. I think the same thing, and you know, I would do if I'm talking to a Mormon, and I'm going to show you from the Book of Mormon where I think. The Mormon view of God is self-contradictory. Or I even will use the New World Translation when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'll use their scripture and, you, and, and, and still be able to show that their view of Jesus is wrong and that the Christian view is the correct view. And I think there's so much po more power to it when you don't have an—if uh, you're using a source that they don't accept— then you have right. another barrier that that comes up in the way. If get, you're going to use a source that they already see as authoritative and still get your point across, 
that's huge. Gary Habermas awesome. calls that a heads I win, tails you lose type of situation. <laughs> and I, 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 like I said, I mean, as Curtis was mentioning, this is a good way. This is something that I think both, no matter if you're old Earth or young Earth, you can use this tactic. Now, for an old Earther, they, they may not take it back, you know, and they may say, well, hey, you can argue from the old Earth perspective. If you're young Earth, you can make an appeal to a case uh, and take it back a step if you so desire. But I think this is really a, a very, this is just an amazing way of going about this, Ryan. I, I applaud you for this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just so powerful. When we can use the science that we have, and I'll, I'll, I want to give you a couple quotes here. Um, uh, first one, Richard Dawkins, right, the famous atheist biologist. Uh, here's what he says. He says, the Cambrian strata rocks, vintage about 500 million years, are the oldest ones which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution, the very first time they appear. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Now, obviously, you say, well, that's not true. There is an evolutionary history, but it, it appears as though they were planted in the ground without any evolutionary history. Uh, Simon Morris, evolutionary biologist, um, says Charles Darwin character, uh, characteristically agonized over it, and still we do not fully understand it. It, of course, is the seemingly abrupt appearance of animals in the Cambrian explosion. And then finally, uh, Kevin Peterson, another evolutionary biologist, says, although the Cambrian explosion is of singular importance to our understanding of the history of life, it continues to defy explanation. That, to me, is powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And where, where you know, you can kind of be snarky and say, well, as, you know, as a Christian, we understand where that came from. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to, um, it, it, it come to a common ground. You can kind of slide in there and use that as as a as a place to say, okay, I, I'm willing to accept this, and this is something that you're believing and you're 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 uh, basing your your understanding on. I'm willing to accept it. Let's go from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Ryan, is there evidence that uh, macroevolution has ever occurred? Um, I don't think so. And again, this is where we, we have to come back and, and remember our definitions. And so when I, when I go over this again with students and, and we go over, okay, what do you mean by evolution? Macro versus micro. Okay, what is your evidence for macroevolution? I, I ask audiences, I say, okay, what is the evidence that you are being taught in your schools that, that evolution is true? Uh, they'll talk about Darwin's tree of life. They'll talk about how um, uh, there's homology between uh, our limbs, right, the, the vertebrate limbs. And so, you know, a, a horse and a bat and a whale and a human kind of have similar bone structure. Uh, they'll talk yeah. about Heckel's embryos, uh, the embryos that Ernst Heckel drew um, and, and the similarity at a certain stage of a de development. Uh, they'll talk about peppered moths, the most famous one. You hear about Darwin's finches. Um, yeah. You hear about uh, four-winged fruit flies. You hear about fossilized horses. Uh, the ape-to-human evolution as well. And so these are the uh, the evidences and the discoveries that are often pointed to as proof that evolution is true. Now, again, you take a step back, and again, remember our definitions. Right. Darwin's finches are the most common given evidence for Darwinian evolution. And so we said, okay, well, what do the Darwin's finches show us? So they show, yeah, they we show see us, that they show the us beak, a change of uh, change, just a change of adaptation. Yeah, we see adaptation. 
that in different types of rainy or wet, dry seasons, the finches with different shaped beaks adapted better to the environment and survived better. We see a survival kind of of the fittest. We see adaptation of the beak change. It was a finch. finch. Right. So you have from finch to finch, there's adaptation yep. within the finches. That's microevolution. And right. so again, if you're in a conversation, you say, okay, what, what definition of evolution are you saying is a fact? And they say, I'm defending macroevolution, Darwinian evolution, common ancestry. Okay, what evolution? The fruit so, flies. What's that? The, the same with fruit flies. Uh, sometimes yeah. the, the fruit flies experiment is used, but, but you don't have a different animal. You still have a fruit fly. Yeah, yeah. you actually have a, you have a more corrupt fruit fly. You have one that is, is, uh, has issues right. and often dies because those wings are useless. Um, the same thing with peppered moths. The peppered moths only show adaptation. They don't show create a new species or new kind being uh, produced. Um, you often hear this often with, um, as well as um, uh, antibiotic, uh, the resistant bacteria. The bacteria can evolve to produce an antibiotic resistance. Okay, well, what is it after it evolves? It's a bacteria. bacteria. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's microevolution. I'm good with it. You know, I, I once read this, you know, this thing, thing popped up online. It said, proof of evolution i went i gotta read this <laughs> I, clicked on, I clicked on the article and it says they discovered a new breed of shark that we've never discovered before and i go yeah one shark made it with another shark and you get a new kind of shark that's <laughs> microevolution. so yeah. what when you actually begin to break down the common evidences given in support of macroevolution, you realize no that supports micro and the christian should be okay with it mm. right. they are proven uh, there's no problem whatsoever with a Christian view in accepting adaptation, with accepting you know natural selection or anything like that. That is that happens. But again, they right. still haven't shown that one species has actually become something different. Right. And I think what ends up happening is when you get a Christian that hasn't been um, you know well versed or developed into being able to speak along with this, or even just even researching it. Um, they're kind of caught off guard, and so they're so they're um, as soon as you hear the word evolution, they're willing to just back up and say, "Wait a minute, that that's that's never happened." And when really defining terms and understanding those terms allows us actually a, a good opportunity to speak truth into that. Like you were saying, um, you know, the, the some common common bones that may be shared, or common looking bones that may be shared. Um, I think it was Frank Turk at one time said, it might not have been him, but he said, uh, well, that doesn't show that it's it's a, a change of kind. That just shows a, a common creator. They did, he found something that, that worked, and he used it. Yeah. And that's, and that's the, like, the other question I have. I, I teach students to use. Again, so, you know, you're asking, well, what do you mean by evolution? You define your terms. What evidence do you have to support it? And then often, it's, well, have you considered that that's actually microevolution, not macro? Uh, but another question I often, I, I teach them to ask is, could that also be explained by a common creator rather than a common ancestor? Mm. And when you then, if you look at some of the other evidences, so when you look at the fact that, you know, uh, uh, apes and humans have 98% genetic similarity and, and you have a similar bone structure, um, well, is it possible that the same creator can make two different things with a lot of similarities? Right. Yeah, we see it all the time. Apple created an iPhone and an iPad that are very, very, very slimmer, similar with some different changes because of a different function or different needed use. And right. Ryan, because you it, have the same creator. It not that 2% that 
very extreme. Isn't that two percent? Doesn't that two percent do very radically different things? I've I've heard it argued, and I can't remember who argued it. I don't know if it was Frank Turk or someone else, but someone said the two percent. And while ninety eight percent sounds like a lot, and it is, the two percent is 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 extreme. It shows extreme differences between human beings and apes. Is is that true, or what could you what could you say in regards to that? Yeah, so this is a, I mean, this is one thing that you're going to get a few different views on because not everyone is going to agree to 98%. Some will give a smaller percent. Um, I, others will say, you know, well, the the, um, the 98% that we are similar is only within the coding part of our DNA. It doesn't count all the rest of the DNA that's not coding, and so it really is only 90% of a smaller percentage. Um, you also have, uh, yeah, it is true that our genetic uh, our genetic makeup is massively long, and so when you're talking about two percent of something, you, it's still a lot, right? right? It's yeah. like you know, it's not two percent of one dollar, and it's, you're talking about uh-huh. fractions. You know, two percent of a million dollars—that's still a lot of money. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, and so it absolutely is uh, a larger percentage. And but those, are, to me, are even details that are a lot more minor, right? Because you know, I don't need to sit here and get into a debate on what exactly that two percent is or does. Or is it part of the coding part, or is it all the DNA? Uh, is it really 95%, or is it 97%, or is it 98%? Look, I'll just say 98%. I'll just accept something straightforward. And even if the 2% is minor and doesn't really do a whole lot, look, I, still, I don't understand why that points to a common creator, or sorry, a common ancestor, right. rather than a common creator. Yeah. Well, and and I, to, to leading into our last question, and I, and I kind of like to piggyback off of this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask the major question, but I'd, I'd like to give a sub-question to this. So, number one, how does the biblical worldview better fit the origins of our existence? And as a subset, if, if, you, if you'd like to answer this, uh, what do you do with, and I think you've kind of already answered it already, what do you do with like the Neanderthals and these other hominids that are existence. Do you say that these were apes, or do you say that these were uh, different variations of human beings? What, what do you, as a uh, creationist, how do how do you deal with this as an as an apologist? Yeah. So um, I've done a I've, I've talked to uh, Fuzz Rana, Dr. Fazal Rana from Reasons to Believe, um, has done an incredible amount of work on this. Um, you know, it's even become uh, much more debated uh, within Christianity. This is a it's the, the historical Adam and Neanderthal debate is actually, I think, uh, increasing right now within Christianity, and there's a lot of interesting things being said, but um, um, a lot of my information that I've gotten is from Reasons to Believe, from Dr. Fazal Rana, he and uh, Hugh Ross wrote a book um, called Who is Adam uh, that talks about this, uh, but I recently uh, interviewed Fuzz Rana on my show, and, and he said that even mainstream scientists will accept and, and admit now that the common Neanderthal fossils that we have discovered um, are part of dead-end evolutionary uh, tree, uh, uh, like a dead-end uh, branch. Mm. And so uh, Lucy and these other creatures, um, I would say that they're not human, uh, that is my view, uh, that they are um, uh, some other creature that God created. For what reason, I don't know. But uh, I believe that it's a different creature that God has created that is distinct from humans, does not have the image of God. Uh, but it's interesting because now even, according to Fazrana, even uh, evolutionary biologists uh, and paleontologists will now say that these Neanderthals are not actually in our 
are not considered to be uh, intermediate uh, kind of fossils and, and, and creatures, but are dead-end evolutionary branches. Wow. Wow. So, so would you say these would be like something like the dodo bird, something that it, a different species, different creature that existed but is now extinct, or like the dinosaur? Uh, this would be yeah. just something like along those lines. Yeah, and and that's what I yeah that's what how I view it is it's a different creature that God has created that has just gone extinct um, and no longer is around. Um, now there's some really just interesting things on how humans had interacted with them. Um, you know, and then you get some controversial stuff and I, and I have a video on, on my YouTube channel, uh, with Fazrana, uh, a short one on, on, you know, what about the cave paintings uh, that you often hear Neanderthals must have been uh, super smart because of cave paintings and, and maybe language and these sort of things. And, and he has some thoughts that he shared on that, that I, that he, he's not convinced, uh, uh, of that evidence that, that Neanderthals were creating a lot of this artwork and imagery and things like that. Um, something that's more unique to image bearers. But, um, yeah, so it's a very interesting thing. But, yeah, I would say a, a, a creature that God has created for whatever reason and has gone extinct. Like hmm. you said, the dinosaurs are other examples. Awesome. So, so how, how would you answer uh, how the biblical worldview better fits the origins of our existence and how life came to be? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it, it just explains things so well. You know, and it's interesting um, atheists challenge me that I, you know, I think, I don't remember this is years ago, but kind of like, oh, you're the ignorant Christian. You don't know what you're talking about. You need to read, um, you need to read the book, uh, Why Evolution is True by Jerry Coyne. And so I got it and I read it. Um, and, and Coyne gives his arguments as to why he thinks that evolution is true, mainly based on, you know, fossil record. Um, you know, what's interesting is that he also brings up, you know, vestigial structures and embryos and bad design, uh, which again, um, is not necessarily proof of evolution, but he's trying to use it against a creation view. Um, but he says uh, multiple times, let me, let me pull up the quote here. Uh, Coyne says multiple times um, things like this. Um, <clears throat> he, he'll bring up a difficulty and then he'll say like, uh, creation supporters have never addressed this difficulty, which is simply just not true. Uh, but then he says, uh, for example, he says, no theory of special creation or any theory other than evolution can explain these patterns. And the patterns there he's talking about is some fossil patterns uh, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the earth. Uh, to me, I go, I don't get his point. What does he mean? No theory of creation can explain these patterns because I think that they're explained very, very well. Uh, so, for example, big issue that um, evolutionists have, and I mentioned that Thomas Nagel even points out, is the origin of life, uh, that you don't have um, the origin of life. And I, I would say, look, that, that is explained very well in a Christian view, that life, we know for a fact that life does not come from non-life. Mutation and natural right. selection have never been observed to be able to create life. But we do know that life produces life. And so what could possibly be the origin of all living things? Well, a, a living being that exists outside of that, that is transcends the, the physical world in which we live in. And that makes so much sense with a theistic view. Um, then you have kind of the diversity of, uh, and the complexity. We know that information comes from a mind. And so the information that we see within the human cell, the fine-tuning that we see within our universe, uh, makes so much sense if there's a designer behind uh behind what we see and this is the big way in which you know um, for example like reasons to believe would 
would argue against evolution is not necessarily basing it off of probability. Like, it's very unlikely for evolution to produce this, therefore it must be creation. Because that's kind of a God of the gaps, and it's kind of like, well, what if we just got really, really lucky? Instead, it's looking at complex, information-rich systems, the complexity of the cell, that it's like a human factory, and it actually functions better than a factory, Yet we would never assume that factories can come about by natural causes, that a factory needs an intelligent engineer and designer behind it to be able to produce that factory. Uh, the same thing we see with the information and genetics, uh, the same thing that we can see in things like the bacterial flagellum that propels the bacteria and the rotary engine that's in that that can function better right. than a human-created rotary engine. Um, right. One example I gave my students in my worldview class this year is as they watched episode one, of the Age of AI series on YouTube. Now, I can only vouch for episode one. That's the only one I've watched so far. <laughs> but episode one of the Age of AI series on YouTube, um, uh, it, it talks about one aspect of it is creating um, a, a, a children in the computer. So this is baby, this computer baby, and it's creating avatars. And, and Will I Am, the, the, the music producer, is on there, and they're creating an avatar of him that actually can learn and then mimic him and be able to do stuff for him. The other aspect of episode one is creating robotic prosthetic limbs for people who have lost their limbs. And what's fascinating is that the most intelligent scientists in the world cannot create a robotic hand that functions anywhere near the ability of a real human hand. Wow. And so, and these guys talk about it, it's just the, the, the engineering to just barely be able, they're like just now getting it to where it can actually open and close individual fingers, right? It used to be your prosthetic hands years ago was just a fiberglass hand that had no function whatsoever, just looked like a hand. Then they had to where it could open and close, but that was it. Now they're getting it to where you can start to move individual fingers, but there's still a lot of issues. Uh, the same, and so, and, and even the, the creating of the avatar in the computer, they talked about trying to replicate the human brain in the computer software and how they're nowhere close to be able to, rec to replicate the complexity of the human brain. And so my mind goes, if the most intelligent scientists working on robotic hands and machine learning and creating avatars and computers can get, admit that they get nowhere near the complexity of a real human hand and uh, an actual human brain, why would we think that my brain and my hand is can be the result of a natural, unguided, mindless <laughs> process. Exactly. Yet Amen. the greatest minds in the world cannot even create a robotic hand that, that mimics it anywhere close. Right. And so I think those right. are, again, are, those are some other examples of just the complexity that we see. And then you can look at science and see things like, well, man, science is showing us that in the Cambrian explosion, it looks like all living things came into existence in a singular event. Mm -hmm. Can the Christian of you explain that? Well, our Bible's been telling us for over a thousand, for thousands of years that God created in a singular event, so to speak. And that it wasn't his evolutionary view, and now our science is confirming this. Now, if you're not going to accept the Christian view of creation, uh, then how do you explain the origin of not just life, but the origin of species uh, and the complexity in it without having this prior evolutionary history? Well, I don't know, we're still finding it. And so... Yeah. It's fair if scientists go, look, we don't have the answer to the origin of life. We're still looking. And we don't have the answer to the origin of advanced, uh, complex um, uh, animals and species. We're still looking. And we don't have the answer to the complexity of beings from a single cell. But we're still looking. That's fair. 
But, man, it's just interesting that the more we find, the more it points to a creator, designer, intelligent mind behind it than it does um, an evolutionary system. Right. Yeah. Brian and I had discussions about this months ago about the fact that, you know, how how great and, and vast our God is when we look at the stars and we look at the universe and then we look at, like you were saying, that, that flagellum, um, that's that's inside a protein molecule. And, and so how small our God is, you know, how, how intricate he is, along with how vast he is, just makes us uh, become more in awe over the fact that, that we have been created, that he cares enough to actually have a relationship with his creation, with his people. And Absolutely. You- and you know, to add, to add to that, Curtis, it's amazing when you think about the omnipresence of God, how yeah. God is in all places at all times, and this would include not only the most the, the farthest galaxy, but this would also include the innermost parts of even the flagellum and things of this nature, that, that whether it's on a minuscule scale or it's on a massive, granular scale, yeah. God is there, and that to me is is almost overwhelming when we stop to think about that. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go out at night and you look at the look at the stars, and you and you just uh, you almost get overwhelmed by just looking at the stars and and the feeling you get when you look up there. It's like God, look at how great you are, how 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 small I am. And then when you look at look the other way inside me is a cell that's got a, a rotary machine that's telling the cell what to do inside of me. <laughs> it, it's just, it's amazing to me. It's it just blows mind. my mind. Yeah. Well, well, uh, Ryan, this has been a, this has been a really fun podcast. I, I've enjoyed every bit of it. Um, we'll definitely have to have you on again. And I, I just really, really appreciate you and, and, uh, everything. And, uh, I, I came across your podcast Oh, a couple of years ago or right in there and I've just enjoyed listening to all of your conversations you've had I've listened to you talk to Fuzzrana and 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 talk to various other people about wide variety of subjects so I really encourage our listeners to jump over there and check uh, check your podcast out and and uh, give it a review on on the app store thank you yeah I appreciate it you know that's one thing I enjoy of uh, of, of talking about the Christian worldview is that there's so many different wide, wide variety of topics that can be discussed in that. And so um, I really appreciate that. And yeah, they can find it at uh, Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly on, uh, for podcast or if on YouTube, you can actually and, uh, maybe get a little plug. They can, they can actually watch the conversation live and interact and ask questions. So just when, you know, Brian joined me just a couple of weeks ago, uh, people are able to send in questions live, ask him, interact. Uh, learn from the scholars, and, and so that's a lot of fun. So um, I actually have Christopher Yuan coming on, I think July 1st, uh, discussing um, the holy sexuality and, and responding to uh, the Christian view of sexuality and homosexuality and that kind of stuff. And then July 10, uh, Greg Coco is coming on and discussing uh, tactics. So those are two interviews yeah. coming up here in the awesome. future. And, and so, uh, uh, yeah, they can check that out. That's just Ryan Pauly uh, on YouTube. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I'm sitting here, when we were talking all, all the way through this whole podcast, the the things I really enjoy is the fact that we have an ability to use Greg Kokel's tactics in 
various different avenues in the Christian worldview and in our Christian discussion. It doesn't just necessarily have to be about um, defending one certain thing, but it, it, you can go in and actually use those same questions to further the conversation and to keep people engaged. It's been great. Absolutely. And Ryan, just so you know, you have an open invitation to come back on the Bellator Christie podcast anytime. Oh, I appreciate it. You guys are too kind. Yeah. Honor. Yeah, it's been a good time. So, well, we at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Spool your own, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Welcome to the Bellator Moment with Brian Chilton. This is a portion of our podcast where we speak to the events of our day from a biblical perspective. As we look at our society, we see nothing but turmoil. The American psyche is being impacted by unjust killings, racial tensions which are at its highest since, they, since the 1960s, rising numbers of COVID-19, riots that threaten to unravel communities, along with a politically toxic environment where devotion to politicians and political parties are at an almost religious level. Amid all this uncertainty, People are asking, where is God? Why is God allowing these things to happen? I recently had the opportunity to join a panel of local apologists and pastors as we discussed the problem of evil at Elkin Valley Baptist Church in Elkin, North Carolina. We navigated certain details concerning the definition of evil, why a loving God allows evil, among other things. One of the most important answers we gave in the conference dealt with why God allows evil. As Alvin Plantinga argues in God, Freedom, and Evil, a loving, powerful God can coexist with a created world where evil exists if God has good reasons to allow evil to exist. The answer to why he does is quite simple. Love. John tells us that God is love. He also notes that God is light, and in him there is no darkness found. Therefore, God is known as love and the absolute good. As such, God must allow a creation where people can respond or reject God's loving advances, if love is to exist. When people are allowed to be free, then the door is open to the possibility that some will reject God's love. 
When a person rejects God's love, evil then comes. The answer to society's problem is found in God. God never promised His children an easy road on this side of eternity. Rather, He steers our paths and helps us as we entrust ourselves to Him. In the end, the best gift of all is God's presence. This has been the Bellator Moment on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.